0: Hey, everybody, Tracy here with news about some live appearances we have coming up. Saturday, July 7th, I will be at History Camp Boston, where I will be part of the History Podcaster Panel. And then the next day, Sunday, July 8th at 2 p.m., Holly and I both will be doing a live podcast at Adams National Historical Park in Quincy, Massachusetts, where our show will be John Quincy and Louisa Catherine Adams Abroad. This is an outdoor show, and it will happen rain or shine. And we're coming back to convention days in Seneca Falls, New York. Our show is at 4 p.m. on Saturday, July 21st in the historic Wesleyan Chapel. You can get more information about all of these shows with links to buy tickets where applicable at MissedInHistory.com. Click on live shows in the menu. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from
1: HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, it's a bit since we've had a history
0: mystery. Well, apart from the mysterious uh, ancient city, we haven't had a more conventional mystery.
1: Yeah, I feel like once we get back a certain uh, number of years in the historical record, everything is a little bit of a history mystery. (laughs) But this is an actual, we don't know what went down mystery. It involves a man who attempted to travel around the world on a bicycle at the end of the 19th century. And I'm not going to say much more than that because I want to let
0: the story of cyclist Frank Lenz unfold on its own. So Frank Lenz was born Frank George Reinhardt in 1867 to Adam and Maria Reinhardt, who had moved from Germany to the United States in 1865. The family was living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the time, where Adam was working as a cigar maker. But Frank never really knew his father. Adam died when Frank was just a baby. And when he was six, his mother, Maria Anna, remarried. This time, she married William Lenz, who was also a German immigrant.
1: As Frank grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, which is where his mother had moved after his father had died, he and his stepfather had a rather strained relationship. William never really saw Frank as his son, and William treated Maria Anna quite poorly. And Frank, though, was a good kid. He sold papers to bring in extra money for the family, and he did well in high school. And after high school, he put himself through business school, and he got a bookkeeping job before he was even 20.
0: Cycling had first made its way to the United States via Great Britain in the 1870s, and it caught on as an entertainment for wealthy people who were looking for a bit of excitement. In the 1880s, it was starting to attract a wider audience of enthusiasts, and this was just perfect timing to, to capture the attention of teenage Frank Lenz. He was unhappy at home, and he was looking for some kind of adventure and diversion.
1: By 1887, Pittsburgh boasted more than 300 cycling enthusiasts, including a few ladies, and the nation was deep in the throes of cycling fever. Lenz purchased his first bicycle. It was a High Wheeler model called a Columbia Expert for $125 after saving and scrimping. He was working, as we said, as a bookkeeper at a brass fittings company, and his salary was $1,200 a year. So this bicycle was no small investment. It was more than 10% of his annual wages.
0: But to him, it was really worth it. He took to the sport instantly, and he was not content to take short, leisurely rides. He rode five miles a day during the work week, and then on the weekends, his excursions were much longer. He was still living with his mother and his stepfather at that point, and so some of his enthusiasm for cycling probably came from a letting him escape from his home life. It also gave him a whole new social circle as he joined the Allegheny Cycle Club and quickly became one of its most prominent members. In June 1887, he made his first
1: 100-mile ride, round trip from Pittsburgh to Newcastle, Pennsylvania. He completed the journey despite the fact that his handlebars broke on the return trip. He just kept pedaling and kind of aiming the bicycle. But from that point, his long trips only got longer, and he started racing. He did really well for himself in competition, even though his high-wheeler was much heavier than a true racing model. He upgraded to a lighter model and then a true racing bike, but it turned out that that racing bike uh, was a little too light for him. He was better at handling a cycle that carried a little more weight, so he went back to that mid-range ride, not his first one, but the second one he had purchased.
0: He transitioned from short-track racing into long-distance competition, so that went back to his existing love of long rides. A 100-mile race from Erie, Pennsylvania to Buffalo, New York, was slated for September 8, 1888, and he was confident of his chances. These were roads that he had traveled many times on his long rides, and even though that morning dawned through a pouring rain, he was still up for it. Lens ended up coming in third after a race that was just grueling and did not have a lot of on-course amenities.
1: Yeah, it was kind of one of those things that uh, if you've ever done any any like running or competition in distance races yourself, uh, a lot of times new races will tell you all the great, like, there's going to be a, a snack stop here and a water stop here, and sometimes if it's not well organized, you don't always get those things. That was absolutely what happened here. They had been promised like that there were going to be sandwiches at one point in the race and that you know there would be all of these support people along the way, and largely due to the rain, those things did not happen.
0: I think uh, under normal Circumstances, if I were promised sandwiches and there were no sandwiches, I would be upset about it. But if I was biking a hundred miles and did not have promised sandwiches, (laughs) it would be a big deal. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, So by the time the finishers got to Buffalo, they were starving and they were completely depleted. And Lenz was really disappointed. He had intended to win, and not securing a victory was a huge blow. But things were dismal beyond that. His teammates from the Allegheny Cycle Club had not been on course where he expected them to serve as a support crew. So they were also supposed to have some refreshments and some help and be able to look over his bike for him and they were not there. They were only at the end to meet him." And he had also sent a parcel ahead to Buffalo so that he would have some money and a change of clothes when the race was over, but that parcel hadn't arrived. So he had to borrow clothes and money so he could stay in a hotel overnight and recover from the race.
0: That race, unsurprisingly, really impacted Lenz and his relationship with cycling. He was never happier than when he was pedaling, but he became way less interested in competing. Instead, he started to think about traveling as a full-time cyclist, and about the same time, he took up photography
1: these two things kind of went hand in hand. There were other people that were starting to make names for themselves as sort of cyclist journalists that would go around and take pictures, and so he thought that might be a good career path. Uh, in 1889, an article in American Athlete featured Lenz and described his recent three-week 836-mile trip. He had traveled with a 35-pound pack of photography equipment, and he took 150 exposures along the way, shipping them home as he traveled. And he was hoping that this write-up of this trip that he had taken would add to his image, because as we said, his long-term plan was forming uh, that he wanted to be hired by a periodical to travel the world by bicycle and take photos along the
0: way. It cracks me up that this is a job that exists today still. (laughs) Like... (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just saw an ad for uh, an airline looking for a couple to live out of uh, an apartment in Reykjavik and basically travel around and post things on social media as their job for a period of time. It's the same basic thing that he was talking about doing here. Mm -hmm. In 1890, Lenz made his way from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to St. Louis by bike. Uh, In the late summer of 1891, he once again started a lengthy bike ride from Pittsburgh and this time went all the way to New Orleans. He took both trips with friend and fellow cycling enthusiast Charles Petticord, and this New Orleans journey was a month long. It was another opportunity for him to build up his reputation as a photographer on wheels. As they made their way
1: south, the two young men met with cycling clubs along the way, and they encountered all manner of terrain challenges and curious onlookers. In Birmingham, Alabama, after having fought through heavy brush for several days, there's also a hilarious side story that they had been warned that there was a crazy moonshiner somewhere in the woods that they should be afraid of, so they were battling through this brush and trying to keep an eye out for someone who might attack them. They finally emerged, and they entered a restaurant's dining room on a Sunday evening. They were hot and dirty and ravenous. And this drew a mixed reaction of wonder and dismay from the townspeople that were just sitting down to Sunday dinner. There was actually a write up in the local paper with a reminder to the travelers that they should mind their manners in the South. <laughs> <laughs>
0: They didn't travel exclusively on pedal power. They also took a train for a brief ride through Mississippi to make up for some lost time. Once they got to New Orleans, they were treated like royalty by the Louisiana Bicycle Club, and they really enjoyed their visit before it was time to board a ship that would take them back to New York. Along the way, and in New Orleans itself, Lenz had still been taking pictures. He
1: got better and better at photography as he practiced, of course, and he even figured out a way to take photos of himself on his bike by attaching his bulb, by which I mean that mechanism that's attached to a long shutter release cord, not a bulb as in a light, Uh, and he attached that to a very long rubber tube that would open the shutter of a camera that was preset nearby, and he would place that bulb in the road, and then he would carefully aim his bike to run over the bulb, and the shutter mechanism would be triggered, and he practiced his timing at this so he could look right into the camera at the moment the photo was taken.
0: When he got home from his trip, he started writing for various publications, describing his travels to New Orleans, laying out his plan to bicycle around the world, and proposing to each magazine that they employ him and sponsor this whole project. He was quick to give himself a bit of PR by writing about his selfies or his ingenious system he had devised to mount an umbrella above the camera to keep the rain and the sun at bay.
1: And coming up, we'll talk about some changes in bicycles and how those impacted Frank's sport and his plans. But first, we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. time cycling had evolved like any sport and the high wheeler that lens favored was starting to seem outdated after the introduction of the so-called safety bicycle the high wheeler which uh, had a much larger front wheel than back wheel with the seat perched atop the apex of that high wheel was dangerous and the safeties were introduced to combat that danger the primary problem with the high-wheeler was that if the front wheel hit an obstacle, the rider tended to be thrown over the handlebars. That could be dangerous and in some cases even fatal. The safety bicycle, like most bikes today, had two wheels of the same size. And after entering a race in which he rode the only high-wheeler that had entered and getting trounced by less experienced riders on safety bicycles, Lenz finally decided that it was time to change up his ride.
0: He finally got the offer he had been hoping for when James Henry Warman, the editor of Outing Magazine, wrote to say that the magazine was willing to go along with Lenz's plan. He just had to use a Victor brand safety bicycle for the journey, so Lenz quickly agreed. Yeah, that seemed like a pretty uh, easy
1: stipulation to him. There was the formality still of two interviews. Warman first sent his assistant, Robert Bruce, to Pittsburgh to meet Lenz in person before the deal was completed. And Bruce actually got more than he bargained for on that trip, as both Lenz's mother and his employer each approached him while he was visiting and begged him to shut Frank's idea down. But Robert Bruce knew that even if Outing Magazine said no to this whole plan, Lenz was going anyway. So he thought at least that way they could kind of help make sure it all went. Uh, safely, and that there was funding for it. So, Bruce reported back to Warman that he thought Frank Lenz was absolutely up for the job.
0: Lenz was invited to New York City after that to meet with Warman in person. That meeting went well, and in the end, Lenz was offered $2,000 for expenses. Warman said he would take out an insurance policy on his correspondent for $3,000 to be paid to his mother. And then Warman and Lenz traveled together to Massachusetts to the factory where Victory Bicycles were being made. They made arrangements for Lens to have a custom-made bicycle. Yeah, that
1: $3,000 life insurance policy was something they kind of kept between the two of them. Uh, basically, Lenz knew that he was doing something dangerous, and... He really adored his mother, and if something went wrong, he wanted her to at least have some sort of financial cushion so she would have something to kind of de- help deal with this, the grief he knew she would feel if something happened while he was on the road. And so he settled his affairs at home. He also wrote out a will that left everything to his mother. Uh, he quit his job that he had held for seven years. This was heartbreaking to his employer. Do you remember they asked Robert Bruce to please not let him do this? Uh, and his employer said, when you get back, you can have your job back if you want it. And he prepared for what he thought was going to be a two-year advance. He also promised his girlfriend, Annie Leach, that once he returned, they could start a life together. And while Lenz had hoped that Charlie Petticord would once again be his traveling companion, and Charlie had kind of suggested that he would go along with this earlier before the offer actually materialized, Charlie opted out, but he told Frank that he could meet him in Europe so that they could finish the trip together. A second cycling friend also turned down the offer to travel with Frank, so Frank Lenz decided to travel around the world alone.
0: To prepare his bicycle and himself, Frank packed a satchel with a change of clothes, a tripod, his umbrella rig, an extra inner tube, and several harmonicas. He wore a belt with pouches for all of his valuables, and he carried his camera, as always, on his back.
1: Frank Lenz started his journey in May of 1892. He had planned to leave at the beginning of the month, but that custom bicycle that he ordered took a little longer than anticipated, so he didn't leave Pittsburgh until May 15th. He went first to Washington, D.C. to pick up his passport, and then he made his way to New York for the official send-off. So Lenz was, at this point, 25 and realizing his dream.
0: He made several stops along the way, and there were celebrations and banquets in his honor. Petticord and a small crowd of other cycling enthusiasts rode alongside him for the first stretch of road as he left Pittsburgh, and then it was just Petticord. At Uniontown, Pennsylvania, the friends said their goodbyes, and Lenz continued on alone. His official start date, once all those parties and paperwork stops were over, was June fourth, 1892. Newspaper write-ups covered the event with a mix of optimism and pessimism over the potential success of the journey, particularly since he was making the trip on his own. Yeah, there have been other
1: people that had had done a similar trip, but uh they always were in pairs or larger numbers It took Lenz five months to cross the United States, sticking to the northern part of the country. He actually spent a week in Canada near the very beginning of his journey, and then he traveled down through Michigan into Indiana and stopped in Chicago to celebrate Independence Day. From there, he went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, St. Paul, Minnesota, and then Minneapolis. He traveled further west through the Dakotas, uh, although he was waylaid there when he got sick, and then he rode into Montana once he was sufficiently recovered.
0: As he made his way to the West Coast, he ran into a few issues. Heat, cacti, and river crossings all made for some precarious moments, but he remained undeterred, and he rode it out. It took him three days to get over the Rocky Mountains. He passed into Idaho and then south to San Francisco, where he boarded a ship bound for Asia.
1: Yeah, and this is definitely the abbreviated version of his travels. Like, he had all kinds of crazy adventures. In one instance, he was on a a bridge when a train was coming, and there wasn't going to be room for him and the bike and the bridge, so he hucked himself over the edge and, like, held onto the edge of the bridge while the train went by. He had a lot of kooky things happen to him on the road. Uh, But once he was on the ship, he first made a brief stop in Hawaii, which Frank loved. He spoke really, really highly of Hawaii and the people there and how beautiful it all was. And then the ship that he was on, the Oceanic, continued to Japan. Lenz spent a month there before heading into China. And Frank Lenz reached Shanghai in December of 1892. And his plan from there was to follow the telegraph line through the country along the Yangtze River into Mandalay and then eventually make his way into Burma and India and Kolkata. From there, he intended to continue through India and Persia and then into Turkey. And this was an ambitious plan in and of itself, but it was also really dangerous because of very, very steep anti-foreigner sentiment in China at the time.
0: Before arriving in Asia, Frank had experienced a dip in his spirits for the first time on this trip. He yearned for the freedom of travel, in part to get away from his stepfather and his home life. And that spirit really stayed with him while crossing North America. But as he left the only country he had ever known, he started to have moments of doubt. He wrote home to reassure his family that he was fine.
1: Throughout this trip, and even in Asia, local newspapers reported his movements. He also sent reports back to Outing Magazine every other month. Reporters for English-language papers interviewed him, and while he was in Shanghai, he also spoke with missionaries and telegraph operators. And they gave him advice for the trip ahead, but mostly they just told him not to do it. But he was going to do it, and he left his Shanghai hotel just before Christmas, 1892, intent on completing his mission.
0: He thought he would reach Europe in the winter of 1893 and 94, cross the continent to the Atlantic Ocean, and then travel back to New York by steamer. But going through China slowed him down considerably. As he moved through the country, the winter became really brutal. The snow caused him to stay in one place for much longer than he wanted. In a month, he only managed 500 miles. And we're going to
1: talk about Frank's struggles while crossing China once the snow let up in just a moment after we take a quick break for a word from one of our sponsors. Explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper Frank had been warned would happen. He was called Foreign Devil almost everywhere he went in China. He was stoned in the road on several occasions, and several times he was frightened enough that he fired his revolver into the air to scare off his attackers. The telegraph line that he was following had ended at a canal with no obvious way to cross. And then he was robbed. He was mobbed in various towns. He hired guides at one point, but they argued and they ended up taking him off course, costing him more than 150 extra miles of travel. And this is just a handful of the many problems he ran into.
0: To make matters worse, the roads were difficult and they took a toll on his bike. He stayed at ends along the way, but also gladly accepted the hospitality of missionaries and telegraph workers when it was offered to him. In one
1: especially frightening encounter, he was attacked by farmers in the countryside, and the conflict escalated until he was hit in the head with a hoe and his ear was injured he eventually managed to dispel the hostility of the situation by acting goofy and sort of doing crazy tricks on his bike and making the people surrounding him kind of laugh and lose their intent to hurt him.
0: In an interview shortly after this incident, he told a reporter that the Chinese were, quote, a plaguey bad lot. And it should be noted that in his writings and interviews, his impressions are exactly what one would expect from a young man who had never traveled farther than New Orleans before setting out to explore the world. So if you read any of his accounts, you'll definitely find some presumption and racism in the mix. So on one on the one hand, Lin seems to have wanted to learn about the world. He's happy to interact with people. And on the other, he often he often characterizes them as simpletons. He praised their work ethic and was dismayed by the poverty that he witnessed in many areas. And he also wrote about the troubling status of women and girls. So for somebody who adored his mother, as Frank did, that was particularly affecting.
1: Yeah, it really did trouble him uh, to see how devalued women were in some of the places he visited. He also told Press after uh, in an interview that took place after his scare with the crowd and the hoe to the head that he hoped his trip would ultimately be educational. He said, quote, "'I have always had a strong desire to travel, and my trip before I got to China, and I hope after I get out of it, will go to prove that there is a fraternal feeling among the human race besides the natural love of self.'" that with civilization comes tolerance and a more sympathetic appreciation of fellow men among all nations.
0: But even having had plenty of close calls, Franklin's remained dedicated to this whole plan. He pressed on with his world tour. And that means that as rain moved into China, he had to walk a lot of the way. But by September 1893, after having spent two weeks laid up sick while still in China, he finally reached Kolkata, and he felt really bolstered by having put the China leg of his journey behind him. In total, it had taken him six months to cross through China, which was twice as long as he had anticipated. He wrote, quote, God help the unfortunate cycler or traveler who crosses China. I could never do it again.
1: The Burma Bicycle Club had welcomed him with open arms, and they treated him like a celebrity. He was treated to a banquet, and the club picked up the tab for his lodgings. This was, of course, before he got to Kolkata. And just before he sailed to Kolkata, he posted a letter to his friends saying that he was doing well. He was repairing his bicycle after all of that damage from the roads in China, and he was really happy to have the hardest part of his trip completed.
0: He eventually set out once again and made his way to Delhi and then Punjab, and he made the decision to head toward the Arabian Sea through the Indus Valley rather than going through Afghanistan. Shortly after the new year, which was 1894, he crossed into Persia. He made his way to the city of Tabriz. He had some minor problems, at one point coming down with a week-long fever, but nothing like what he had dealt with while he was traveling through China. He was really eager to finish this trip, so eager that he decided he would travel directly through Turkey, which was at that time also known as the Ottoman Empire, to get to Europe. That decision was made despite the Westerners he spoke with in Persia, saying that he should take the safer and longer route through Russia. They basically begged him, like, please do
1: not go that way. And he, all he could see was like, it's so short if I just cross this country, I'll be at Europe, versus having to go all the way around. And he wrote to his friend Charlie uh, that he missed pie and ice cream. And then he also wrote to his editor at Outing Magazine that he was desperately homesick. And at the same time, I should say, when he would write to his family, he always reassured his mother that he was doing great. So there were kind of two stories of what was going on with Frank Uh, reaching North America. One, that he was just desperately homesick and kind of miserable, even though he still acknowledged he was having fun at some points on the trip. And the other was like, everything's fine, everything's great. And so he left the city of Tabriz after sending these letters in May of 1894. And that was the last time anyone saw him alive.
0: The summer stretched on and no one heard from him. His family and friends were worried by the lack of correspondence because Frank had always been had always been really regular in his communications. At one point, one of his friends did get a letter and that offered a spark of hope, but soon they realized that that letter had been sent before Frank vanished and it had just been delayed in transit. Initial theories as to Frank's
1: whereabouts tended to be pretty hopeful. There were early suspicions that this disappearance may have actually been a hoax or a publicity stunt for the magazine, or that he merely wanted to spend some truly alone time apart from his life uh, before he returned. And those ideas were really all very out of character for Frank Lenz, and as time advanced and there was still no word, hope started to really fade. Cycling magazines and newspapers throughout the world posed the question, where is Frank Lenz? This whole issue was then further confused by outing magazine falsely reporting that Lenz had actually reached Constantinople.
0: Diplomats in Tehran and Constantinople were asked to investigate, but as summer turned to autumn, there was still no word. Outing's editor, James Henry Warman, believed that Frank had been captured and was being held for some kind of ransom. He intended to handle the matter of payment. Outing printed no more information on Lenz's travels, even as the periodical was criticized for not having any kind of update. The public thought that Warman might be withholding information. Yeah, it seems like Warman thought, like,
1: I'm just going to handle whatever this ransom situation is on my own. I will pay whatever it takes and we will, like, I don't want to keep reporting things because he thought he might somehow, like, mess up a deal that might come his way. But really, people were like, why won't you, you must know something and you're not telling us anything. It was a very frustrating time, of course, for everyone involved. The State Department conducted an investigation, and eventually it was confirmed that Lenz had crossed into Turkey, and it was confirmed exactly where that had happened, but the trail kind of went cold after that. In 1895, another cyclist, William Sachtelben, who had himself made a successful round-the-world journey, again, he did it with a friend, set out to find Lenz, or at least any information as to what had happened to him. And that trip was also funded by Lenz's outing editor, James Henry Warman.
0: Before Sachtelben had even started the journey, a Paris cycling journal reported that Lenz had been shot and killed by Kurds while on the road. This information came from an unnamed source, Once he arrived in Constantinople, William Sachtelben began hearing rumors of a man who had been shot in the Delhi Baba Pass.
1: Yeah, the rumors that were circulating in Constantinople basically were exactly the same as this Paris paper had reported. And eventually, Sachtelben uncovered a story that Lenz had inadvertently insulted a high-ranking Kurd while traveling. Some of Lenz's camera equipment was found near the village where this whole insult incident was said to have taken place. But no body was ever recovered.
0: The State Department pressured the Turkish government to make financial amends for what was believed to have happened to Lenz. They did agree to a settlement, but with the condition that there was no admittance of guilt. Frank's mother received $7,500 in the settlement, She had planned to use the money to travel to Turkey herself to try to find her son's remains and bring them home, and then amended that plan to send somebody else on her behalf, probably Charles Petticord. But then her husband, William, became paralyzed, and his medical expenses quickly ate into that settlement money. Mrs. Linz's desire to have her son's remains brought home was never fulfilled.
1: And there are still people who debate over the true fate of Frank Lynn. So while there was circumstantial evidence to back up this murder idea, and which was pretty much what a lot of people just accepted at the time, that's really all there was, though, were camera pieces and rumors. So uh, we still don't know for certain what happened to him. There are certainly people who like to theorize that he may have met uh, his end in a much more Troubling but benign way, like that he may have fallen from a high ledge that he didn't see coming up or that, uh, you know, he may have been crossing a a body of water like a river and not really made it. Those things all could potentially have happened to him. We just will probably never, ever know. Uh, which is a pity, I think, about uh, some of the things he was doing early on in his cycling career, like the fact that he figured out basically how to take selfies way ahead of that game (laughs) and how he had rigged up this, you know, interesting umbrella system. Like, he was clearly uh, a young man with some ingenuity and a lot of drive. And so it's one of those things where you pity sort of what could have been had he survived this trip. Do you have some listener mail also? I do, and it's way more chipper than people disappearing with no knowledge of whatever happened to them. Oh, good this is from our listener Carl uh, and he has written to us once before he had sent a, a laminated postcard a couple years back and he said I write to you for two reasons the first is that I really enjoyed your episode about Henry box Brown I've been fascinated with his story for many years I first heard about it when someone at the Rudisill public Library here in Tulsa built a replica of Brown's box that's still kept there if you ever visit Tulsa be sure to check it out along with other other cultural icons and then he kind of gives us a level list of things to tour and he said the second reason i wanted to write is to brag that i am now officially a mist in history completist having listened to every single episode by every combination of hosts going back to genghis khan in june of 2008 it's so exciting to think that your 10-year anniversary is coming up just in just a couple of months I also wanted to say that it amuses me to listen to you now because, in order to work through the archives more quickly, I listened to most of the episodes on 1.5 speed. <laughs> now that I'm caught up, I've switched back to normal speed, and it seems like you talk so slowly. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. My experience has gone from a rapid-fire blitz of information to a more relaxing listening experience. But no matter whether fast or slow, I always enjoy hearing your voices, and you remain one of my very favorite podcasts. Thanks so much. Oh, Carl, that is such a lovely letter. Thank you so much. I have done that before where I have done the... the faster speed listen to a podcast and then when it goes back to normal it really does feel like everyone is talking through some sort of like molasses filter it's a very strange phenomenon but hopefully it will soon start to seem normal again uh, if you would like to write to us you can do so at history podcast at com. you can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Mist in history and you can visit us at our website mistinhistory.com, where we have an archive of every episode that has ever existed as well as uh, show notes for any of the episodes Tracy and I have worked on. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and you can explore history with us. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
0: Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people you can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping?